Paul then is bringing his words to Titus to a close now. He's said a lot about what he wants Titus and his church to be doing. He has very consciously emphasized the truthfulness of God as a contrast to the falsity of the Cretan culture. He's called for the Cretan church to recognize the need to make the gospel attractive. And in the first part of chapter 3, he's reminded them and reminded us of what they and we were before Christ found us. And he summarized the gospel, the glory of redemption, telling Titus to stress this as the true motivation for the Cretans to embrace what is good and profitable to them. And so now in verse 9, he's starting to conclude by firstly giving Titus some pitfalls to avoid. To avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, and quarrels about the law. And the key word here is foolish, because what it's not telling us is that there aren't stands for truth that have to be made. It's not a don't bother standing on anything. The early church was constantly having to deal with heresies that either threatened the truth of Christ being both human and divine or dealt wrongly with Christian people uh, by either being too morally harsh with them or conversely too lax. So serious deviations from biblical truth existed then within the church just as they do now and have to be navigated through. And so there are things that we do need to stand on. It's also true that some truths do have to be arrived at by long discussion or argument. Paul has had to coach his listeners towards the truth of the gospel like this very many times. But in Galatians chapter 2, Paul records that Titus was present during a meeting in Jerusalem that dealt with the issue of Jewish Christian leaders trying to impose circumcision on Gentiles, which is us. And this is the kind of thing that Paul is referring to when he talks about foolish quarrels and controversies. Things that, because they're untrue or no longer true or relevant, or with other issues perhaps just not worth fighting over, don't help people in their walk with God. In the 1990s, there was a a renewed interest in the end times, huge theological schisms over whether the rapture might be in relation to the tribulation, very bitter division over something that in the end can't be proven till its time comes. And so Paul is warning Titus and warning us against being divided over or being sucked into things that just aren't worth it. The great Victorian preacher, Charles Spurgeon, wrote this. There are always plenty of thorns about, and there are certain professors who spend half their lives in fighting about nothing at all. There is no more in their contention than the difference between Tweedledum and Tweedledee, but they'll divide a church over it. They'll go through the world as if they'd found a great secret, It really is not of any consequence whatsoever, but having made the discovery, they judge everybody by their newfound fad and so spread a spirit that is contrary to the spirit of Christ. And so the futility of these kinds of conflicts 
is one of this letter's major narrative points, that being false conflicts, they just lead to unprofitable behaviour. And while conflicts that may be necessary can also be handled wrongly at times, sound doctrine should increase our sense of God's grace and thus help us to seek the outflow of that grace in how we process life. And then there's this seemingly odd warning about genealogies. This is clearly important to Paul as he warns Timothy about it too. The root of this is the importance of genealogy in the ancient world and especially to the Jewish culture of the Old Testament. It was often important in determining land rights and as a consequence of this, rabbis would often concoct improbable family uh, pedigrees to authenticate themselves and also about various heroes of the Old Testament. Quite often too, immediately preceding the time of Jesus, Jewish genealogy had been used sometimes to exclude the possibility of Gentiles becoming Jews and therefore followers of God. Paul would have been concerned that this might be seen by traditional Jewish minds as excluding Gentiles from the gospel. Some commentators also think that Paul is referring to criticisms that may have been made about the genealogies given for Jesus in Matthew and Luke, leading to doubts about who Jesus was. And so, across the canon of his writing, what Paul offers us instead is the only posterity that you and I need to get behind, which is the posterity of the gospel in the Old Testament as revealed in the law and the prophets, the faithfulness of God's unfolding plan of salvation. But perhaps there's also an implication here that it's not any posterity of our own that makes you or I authentic. The Sunday Times journalist Dominic Lawson wrote a recent article about the then slightly higher number of hopefuls for the Tory leadership, in which he said that he feared that rather than their character or suitability or hopeful ability to negotiate the interminable Brexit saga, what might be looked at instead was their family backgrounds. Were they too upper class? to lower class, to middle class? Might they be tempted to massage any of this to look good? Can they relate to this group of voters or that? And what he said is, what's needed is authenticity, not contrived personal history. So our culture sometimes loves to scrutinise posterity too, to appeal to it sometimes. But Jesus undercuts this. When the Pharisees claim to be children of Abraham, which genetically they are, Jesus tells them, actually, spiritually, no, you're not. And so we can rest on spiritual posterity sometimes too, can't we? In the past I did this, or I was here when that happened, or I am that, or I was that. But is our faith still strong now? Are we still keeping a strong relationship with Jesus now? 
Are we still doing what he's asking us to do now? Equally, could we, in our minds, however unconsciously, think that the side of the tracks that people come from, the cultural or religious background of someone, might stop them from coming to Jesus? And so Paul goes on to mention arguments about the law. In chapter 1, verse 10, he's already said that dispute over circumcision is an issue in the Cretan church. And then in verses 10 and 11, he goes on to give what seems like a harsh penalty. Warn them once, warn them twice, then leave them. Self-condemned, warped, sinful. Paul has a lot to say elsewhere, most notably in Corinthians, about other situations where wider forms of discipline might apply. But here he's concerned about false doctrine dividing the church. He's already said in chapter 1 that this issue is dividing households for dishonest gain. So it's not even as if these people who are in the wrong are well motivated. So his concern is for the stability of households that comprise the church. In chapter 2, he's called us to strive to please God in our lives while we are waiting for the blessed hope. And his warning here is that wrong teaching pollutes the truth of the gospel and doesn't give give us a reason to keep our eyes on Jesus in all that we might say or do. The Greek here, um, in saying just walk away, it suggests just being aloof, refusing to get sucked into this kind of thing, rather than wider forms of church discipline in this instance. But it's important to note that in wanting to engage with divisive people in dialogue, what he's describing here is redemptive before it's punitive. He wants Titus to win back to the truth those who have fallen into error. It's also important to note that his concern to minimise the influence of false teaching is rooted in the one truth that saves us all. Paul is a former Pharisee. Once upon a time, he would have been one of those concerned with minutiae while people starved spiritually. But he's met Jesus now, and only that matters. And so that knowledge of how God became and continues to become real to us, the times that we can point to when he's met with us and worked in my life, your life, this has to be what anchors us to the truth, inspires us to know his word so that we can know what's true and what's important and so the Holy Spirit can help us to speak into situations when we need to. Again, Spurgeon offers the kind of corrective that I think Paul is driving at when he writes this. Our days are few and are better spent in doing good than in disputing over matters which are at best of minor importance. But he goes on to say, there are, however, some questions which are the reverse of foolish, which we must not avoid, but fairly and honestly meet. 
such as these. And he goes on to ask us this. Do I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Am I, therefore, renewed in the spirit of my mind? Am I walking not after the flesh, but after the spirit? Am I growing in grace? Does my conversation adorn the doctrine of God my Saviour? Am I looking for the coming of the Lord in the right way and watching as a servant should do who expects his master? His final question is, what more can I do for Jesus? And then, as we secondly go on to consider the helpers that Paul mentions in verse 12 and 13 and the final exhortation to people to do good. Paul mentions two helpers who he's sending to mind the church while Titus joins Paul in Nicopolis back on the nice warm mainland for the winter. A lot of commentators think Titus might be being redeployed here, sent on his next mission to somewhere that hopefully is going to be a bit less of a strain on his nervous system. And so these two people, Artemis and Tychicus, are coming to cover. By tradition, Artemis was one of the 70 sent out by Jesus who later became a bishop, while Tychicus, we're told in Acts chapter 20, is an Asian convert. Paul obviously regards him very highly. In both Ephesians and Colossians, he's described as a dear brother, a faithful minister, a fellow servant in the Lord. So Paul might be continuing to try and help this troubled Cretan congregation by parachuting in one of his best disciples. Despite everything he said about the Cretans, he's not saying they're just Cretans. We can't do anything more for them. He's not giving up on them without a fight. He's fighting for them in prayer and with trusted ministers, just as you and I need to fight in prayer for people too. In verse 13... Paul commands Titus to do all he can to help Zenos and Apollos, who have probably brought this letter to him. Zenos, we're told, is a lawyer. Um, we see Apollos in Acts, don't we, where as a young convert he's taught by Priscilla and Aquila, who have been brought to faith by Paul. Now, in his turn, Apollos is functioning for the gospel, being helped on his way here by Titus with some practical support. And so this is a chain of disciple-making. And so all of us, no doubt, can point to people in our lives who have helped us in our faith. Key people, key moments, key encouragements. We've all had them, haven't we? And so many of us, in turn, are now investing in others in precisely the same way, aren't we? Whether that be through support for mission partners, helping with holiday club, organising, leading, just helping, discover and welcome courses, simple hospitality, 
one-to-one Bible studies or group studies. The outreach that we've done in the Jenny Lind area and will do again in the future. And, of course, praying for people, most importantly. The list is endless, isn't it? And so, through men like Apollos, the fruit of personal investment, we might remember Paul's words from Galatians, not to be weary in well-doing. And let those words encourage us about the work we do. The people we speak to about Jesus at work or at school, which can, one of, which can be one of the hardest places to be known as a Christian. And even though working with people doesn't always work out how we'd like it to, in the time frame that we'd like it to, we just don't know, do we, what seeds are taking root. So perhaps especially because it's nearly upon us as we get ready for Holiday Club again. Let's be encouraged by remembering how God has used it and will do again. The work that he does in us too through all the places where we serve him. That his strength is with us beyond what we can do on our own and that nothing is for nothing. Apollos is widely thought by a very long-standing tradition to be the author of the epistle to the Hebrews. Obviously, that's not a certainty, but many, many commentators think it's the most likely out of a few candidates to be him. So we do just never know. And then, in verse 14, Paul ties up all that this letter has discussed about personal life standards with another caveat. Learning to do good to work honestly instead of the depths that the Cretans had sunk to is partly for our benefit, our own self-respect, enjoyment, home life. But it's also because there's needs around us that need to be met, just as Titus has to meet Apollos' needs, gospel needs that have to be resourced in different ways. And so, with a final note about greeting, Paul, thirdly, ends with grace. One commentator says that in the light of all that Paul has said about the Cretan situation, saying, grace be with you all, is nothing less than a prayer for strength in battle. That may well be true, but additional to this, Paul so often starts and finishes with this exhortation to grace. And it's more than just a greeting. It's a holding out to the churches then and to us now of God's peace offering in Jesus Christ, of all that he's done, of all that he is. And so this drive for the Cretan church and for us to get good knowledge of God's truth, to let it shape life so that the gospel is attractive. Finally, culminating in these warnings about the law and genealogy and the example of the treasured co-workers that are mentioned ends with the grace with which God helps us all. The reminder that we don't strive on our own, that God's spirit is with us. However severe Paul can seem, he knows where each of us has come from, from the Cretans 
to himself. He knows his own weaknesses as much as we know ours. And so what he leaves us with is the grace that always helps us. The grace to strive to be all that he's calling us to be. The grace that we never stop praying for. Never stop needing. Thanks, Jason.